We turn this morning to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive to them. After his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we could rightly say, stands as the core, essential, summarizing truth of the gospel. And what this means is that apart from the resurrection, there is absolutely no gospel. And the question is, just how important is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus? We Take it as a given, we say it from time to time, that the resurrection is crucial. The resurrection is a cardinal tenet of the faith. But the question is, just how important is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus? Let's consider the following. Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians, and he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the truth I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. You'll recall that when the apostles were seeking a replacement for Judas, Judas, who had betrayed the Lord Jesus, what was the criterion for his replacement? If you go to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, you see the deliberation of the apostles. So one of the men who had accompanied, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Even in that first business meeting of sorts, the resurrection figured prominently. And the fundamental criterion for the selection of a new person for the apostle, for the apostleship, was one who had to have seen the risen Christ. 
We know that in the early days of the church, the apostles faced tremendous persecution for preaching the gospel. And when we understand the fundamental factor which triggered such fierce opposition from the religious establishment, we come to see just how central, how crucial the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is to the preaching of the gospel. Listen, for instance, to Acts chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 33. The apostles are preaching, and the word of God says this, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were upset, they were annoyed, greatly annoyed. Why? Because the resurrection of the Lord Jesus disturbed their whole malicious agenda. And then verse 33 tells us, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. It was for the resurrection of Jesus that the apostle Paul, we know, was not only persecuted, but ridiculed according to Acts chapter 17 and verse 18. What will this babbler say? He's speaking about some strange God and about Jesus who rose from the dead, they said. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we see then, and we could rightly say, is the keystone of biblical Christianity, the very bedrock and foundation of the Christian faith. Hence, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes these words. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And he further says in verses 17 through 19 of that same chapter, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying in summary. He's saying this, that had Christ not been raised from the dead, then not only would preaching be an exercise in futility, but preachers would be lying about God. They would be misrepresenting God, claiming that Christ rose from the dead, when in fact that was not the case. And for Paul then, and for us, the bad news would then be that the sin problem has not been addressed. Hence, Christians who have died have eternally perished. That's what Paul is saying here. And what's more, Paul says that Christians would be, of all people, the most pitied. And you can think why that would be so. It's not hard to figure out why they would be the most pitied of all people. You see, they would be the most pitied of all people because all the while they were believing on Christ, all the while they were living for Christ, suffering for him, sacrificing for him, they were believing in a false messiah. They were living in a dream world, chasing as it were, an idle, empty dream. All their profession of faith in Christ was of no ultimate purpose if it was that Christ was not in fact raised from the dead, Paul is saying. 
Now, because of the proclivity of the human heart and mind to skepticism, to unbelief, uh, God has seen it fit to put in his word ample evidences of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This brings us to our text this morning regarding our Lord Jesus. Luke says here in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, He, that is Christ, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And there are two words here in verse 3 that are worth noting. First of all, the word presented. In non-biblical Greek, the word that's translated here as presented was used in connection with bringing someone before a magistrate or judge. And here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, the word has the sense of showing for the sense of proving. For the purpose of demonstrating or establishing the veracity of something. It's the word Paul used in Acts chapter 24 verse 13 when he appealed to Felix saying regarding his accusers, neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. And so as used here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, the word presented we would say has forensic overtones. It has the flavor of courtroom language, we are saying. Paul is, or rather Luke is saying here that after Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself, as it were, for evidence. And then the next word, notice, he says he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. According to one lexicon behind the root word that's used here for proof is the idea of that which causes uh, something to be known in a convincing, decisive manner. That's why the King James Version adds that word, infallible, by many infallible proofs. The idea here is that the proofs presented to his apostles by the Lord Jesus were overwhelming. They were compelling beyond any possibility of doubt. They were, we would say, incontestable evidences. And I would say to us, beloved, this morning, on the sure basis of the infallible word of God, the numerous attestations to the reality of Christ having been raised from the dead, the resurrection of our Lord stands as the single most attested fact in all of human history. So let's consider this morning some of the many proofs Scripture presents in connection with this grand event. The New Testament cites ten appearances of the risen Christ prior to his ascending into heaven. According to Mark chapter 16, verse 9, John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, John, Jesus, showed himself alive, first of all, to Mary Magdalene. He then showed himself to another woman, also named Mary. We learned that in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. And let me say that, that that is huge. That is a big deal. And why are we saying that? Because here's the point. Were the gospel writers intending to fabricate a narrative? Were they intending to fabricate their story? Then what they were doing was nonsensical. They would not want it to be known that Jesus first appeared to women. Now understand this, that would not sell. 
And why is that so? Because according to the cultural milieu of that day, very little regard was given to the testimony of women. In fact, according to New Testament scholar Craig Keener, quote, the witness of women was considered unreliable in that culture. The detail is definitely not one that ancient Christians would have invented because it did not appeal to their culture. Jewish officials, he says, considered the witness of women nearly worthless because they regarded women as unstable and undependable, end quote. And yet here we find the gospel writers affirming categorically, in fact, in a matter-of-fact way, that Jesus, the first witnesses that saw the risen Christ, were women. And that really is huge. That suggests, that tells us something, that what we have in the Gospels are not fabricated tales. The very fact that the Gospel writers, in a matter-of-factly state, that women were the first to have seen the risen Christ suggests that this was not some story they were concocting. Jesus appeared, first of all, to Mary Magdalene, no doubt, because he knew how much she had been grieving. He knew how much she was grieving her loss of his presence. We see that in John chapter 20, verses 11 and 18, when she went to the tomb, she was there crying, Where is my Lord? They have taken away my Lord. Has anyone seen my Lord, we can imagine her saying, according to Mark 16, verse 9, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her and mistakenly construing that Jesus' body would no, be no longer around. Jesus himself would not be around. Let his body, his deceased body, it was as though her world had entirely fallen apart. Jesus, no doubt, appeared first of all to her out of compassionate regard for her grief, for her pain, for her sense of loss. I wanted to hear this this morning. The resurrected Christ still meets people in their griefs and sorrow. And part of the purpose of his resurrection, my friends, the resurrection of Christ, we know he, he defeated the work of the devil, he defeated death, he defeated everything that stands in the way of our salvation, of our eternal well-being. And let me say this, just as he comforted Mary at that tomb, so he comforts those who are, being, who are in bereavement, those who are experienced grief and loss. Now, Matthew records how that before Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had seen Jesus, they were instructed by an angel of the Lord to tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead and that he would go before them into Galilee. We see that in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 7. We are told in Matthew 28 verses 8 and 9 that as they departed the tomb, what happened? Jesus met them. And Matthew tells us there in Matthew 28, verses 8 and 9, they took hold of his feet, those feet that had been pierced on that cruel Roman cross, and they worshipped him. It was no ghost. It was no phantom. This was the living Lord Jesus. 
Let's look at the evidence for the resurrection as presented by the gospel writers Luke and John. According to Luke 24, 13 through 15, Jesus himself, the word of God says there, drew near and went to the, uh, with the unnamed individuals, two unnamed individuals, on the road to Emmaus. They were talking about all that had occurred in the past days. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, no doubt. His death. And before they were able to recognize him, he expounded to them the scriptures of the Old Testament, Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. He accompanied them home, he broke bread with them, he broke bread in their presence, he ate with them, according to Luke 24, 28 through 30. And then verses 31 to 35 of Luke 24 tells us, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, understand what's happening here. These were two discouraged individuals. We don't know who they were. They were headed for Emmaus. They were all forlorn. They were all sad, very much dejected. Why? Because Christ, in their minds, was still dead. And after the Lord Jesus had opened up the scriptures to them, by this time they did not know it was the Lord Jesus. When he vanished from their sight, he recognized that indeed it was the Lord Jesus. They said, listen, it's as though they were saying, do you feel what I feel? Didn't our hearts burn within us? And notice what happened. Instead of going on in their journey to Emmaus, they made a 180 and went back. To Jerusalem. You know what happened? We talk about pep in the steps. Listen, that's what the resurrected Christ does. The resurrected Christ, beloved, brings joy to those who are dejected, those who have lost hope, those who have come to the point where they are tempted to believe that everything is lost, that there is absolutely no hope, their world has fallen apart. Let me say this, a sight of the resurrected Christ invigorates our steps, so to speak. And in convincing, spectacular fashion, we notice he appeared to Peter, who had regrettably denied him, Luke chapter 24, verse 33, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. And that very evening, that very evening, as ten of the disciples were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, who showed up? Jesus. In convincing, spectacular fashion, the word of God tells us he came and stood among them. And here's the point, despite the fact that the doors were shut, John chapter 20 and verse 19. That was certainly amazing. I sometimes hear young people here in the United States, they say, that's awesome. (laughs) I like to hear it when they say, that's awesome. Let me tell you, that's awesome. 
You see, just as death could not keep our Lord Jesus in the grave, so locked doors were no challenge to the risen Lord. Locked doors could not deter him from entering a room. Here's the point. He's Lord not only of the spiritual realm, he's Lord of the physical realm. He's Lord of all. He invades material defenses. Why? Because to begin with, he was the one who created them. Greeting his disciples, he then showed them his hands and feet. That's evidence. And following this, John chapter 20 verse 20 tells us they were glad when they saw him. According to John 20 verses 24 through 27, Thomas was not around when Jesus came and when his fellow disciples told them that they had seen the Lord, the Lord is risen indeed. What do you think Thomas said? Thomas said this, unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There are people like that today. And let me say this. Eight days later, eight days later when Thomas and the other ten disciples were again in a locked room, Jesus again came and stood in their midst and greeted them. And here's the wonder, here's the charm, here's the grace of our Lord Jesus. Word of God tells us, the word of God suggests here, he singled out Thomas. And inviting Thomas, Jesus invited him to feel his hands, to place his hands at his wounded side, encouraging him not to be disbelieving, but to believe. And what we are seeing this morning, and what I'm suggesting to you, beloved, is this. You know this very well, but particularly those who are not saved, let me say this. You are listening by way of the internet. Let me say this. That Christian faith, the Christian faith is not a blind leap in the dark. The Christian faith is based on facts. The Christian faith is based on the fact of history. The Christian faith is based on the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and scripture records for us ample proofs, sufficient proofs, overwhelming proofs to the effect that he is alive. He is risen indeed. What was Thomas's response? Verse 28. Here is a skeptic. Here was a man who adamantly refused to believe that Jesus had indeed come back from the dead. Thomas, we are told in verse 28, says this, said this, John chapter 20. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And we don't believe here that he was taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, like people today would make that kind of, of, of exclamation. No, 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 no. He said, my Lord and my God. Because what was Thomas saying in effect? This has to be God. This has to be none other 
than the, eter the living eternal son of God. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, listen, Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And it's the same message today because here's the point. The one who comes to God, scripture says, must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if you are to be saved, you are not saved. It is not going to come about by your reasoning your way to God. It's not going to come by your uh, seeking through books to find proofs for the existence of God. It is going to come through faith, not blind faith, but faith that is grounded on the evidence of the infallible word of God. In Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43, Luke has Jesus appearing to the eleven, demonstrating to them that he was not a spirit by virtue of the fact that he had flesh and bones. He says this, see me, handle me, touch me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. You go many years after, and here's the Apostle John writing his very first chapter in the first epistle of John. He begins, that which was from the beginning. He's talking about the eternal Son of God. Which we have seen, which we have handled, which we have looked upon the eternal word of life. For the word was manifested and we have seen that eternal life which is from the Father. John says, listen, you can go to the bank on that. He says, we saw him, we handled him, we touched him. And let me just say this because somebody might say this morning, well, Patrick, you are appealing to the fact that or, or, or the claim fact that Christ rose from the dead on the basis of what scripture says. And we said this some time ago, and I'm going to say it again. For the benefit of those who did not hear. Here's the point. The writers of scripture, you see, even though they were with Jesus, and they saw Jesus and they touched him, they saw his miracles, they never used that as the final definitive basis on which to trust Christ. They never do that. As I said last week, Peter said we saw him on the mount and we heard from heaven the voice of majesty saying, this is my beloved son. Peter says, listen, we have a more sure word of prophecy. What was he referring to? The scriptures. Listen to the apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 3. For I declare to you, brethren, the gospel I preach to you by which you are saved. If you keep in memory the things I've preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And then he says this, oh, that Christ died and that he, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. Why is that important? Because whatever God deems important, he puts it in writing and what becomes inscripturated stands as the sure, infallible word of God. What that means is this, you can't tamper with it, you can't tinker with it, you can't add to it. You know, people, as time goes by, what happens, history has a way of changing. We see that in our society today. People are revisionists when it comes to history. God has written his word in a book so that it cannot be tinkered with. It cannot be changed. It stands written. 
He invited them to touch him and see him for themselves. All of this is recorded in the Gospels, the Word of God. And then showing them his hands and feet, he asked them for something to eat. Even as they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Luke tells us in Luke 24, 40 and 41. Listen to verses 42 and 43, same chapter, Luke 24. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate. Watch the last two words before them. Luke is engaging here in apologetics, as it were. Luke is saying, look, this is demonstrable evidence. This is demonstrable proof that Jesus came back from the dead because ghosts don't eat. Spirits don't eat. He asked them for food. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate before them. He ate it before them. So in clear, unmistakable terms, the disciples were left in no doubt as to the identity and the reality of the risen Christ. Jesus showed himself to them, he invited them, notice, to touch him. He ate with them. Later in Luke 24, 44 through 49, he taught them and commissioned them to preach the gospel. Listen, you know this very well. A spirit, a ghost, doesn't do that. Now in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. John 21, 1-11 shows Jesus again revealing himself, this time to seven disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And here in John chapter 21, we see that instead of remaining at Jerusalem, as Jesus had instructed them, under Peter's leadership, they decided to go fishing. They decided to go fishing. And what do you know? Who showed up? Jesus. Jesus told them, listen, remain at Jerusalem and I will meet you there. Under Peter's leadership, evidently it still had not dawned on them that Jesus really had come back and that what all that Jesus told them before, including the ministry they were to perform, still held true. And of course, you know, these disciples, you had to tell them, Jesus had to tell them over and over and over and over the same thing. Evidently, Peter did not get the message. It did not dawn upon him the reality of the risen Christ. And so he took seven of the disciples and decided to go fishing. Instead, Jesus shows up. And you can see something of the humor of the Lord Jesus because they had been toiling all night. Jesus comes on, and what does he ask them? He says, children, do you have any fish? If you, if you just look at the account, children, do you have any fish? Verse 5, then they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. You know, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes to us in various capacities that are answerable to 
where we happen to be. Here were disciples who had lost a sense of their commission, a sense of their calling. When Jesus had called them, you remember, what was his statement to them? He says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And here it was, Peter and these seven disciples, rather than waiting on Jesus, decided to go back, as it were, into fishing. And Jesus comes along, and you talk about rubbing it in. He says, have you caught anything? They said, nothing. And he says, cast your net on the other side. And the word of God tells us that when they did that, verse 8, dragging the net full, they dragged the net full, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fire laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now, this is verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. On and on, the evidence evidences mount up. But the point I'm making here, I was making the point that the resurrected Christ meets us in our various capacities of need. He met Mary Magdalene in her discouragement. He met her at her very low discouraged point. The resurrected Christ still comforts today. He met these fishermen who had lost their sense of call to ministry that he had commissioned them. And it might be this morning that some might be listening these words and you are inclined, you are tempted to leave the ministry. You know, reports are out and we hear the statistics every year. And I don't have it often, but they'll tell you, countless ministers abandon the call. And they go to something else. Why? Among other reasons, discouragement. Survival. And what we have here in this narrative is a perfect point to the effect that the resurrected Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who called us will take care of all that pertains to us by way of challenge, and he will supply our needs. Discouraged? Thinking of leaving the ministry? Think of this scene. Our Lord Jesus shows up. And what's interesting was how he dealt with Peter, Peter the ringleader. Because Peter, he needed to deal with Peter because there was some unfinished business. You remember what Peter did days before, how he miserably denied the Lord Jesus many as three times. And so after breakfast, Jesus had a little talk to, with, with, with Peter. We, we would say today a heart-to-heart talk. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord. I love you. And for us to get the dynamics here, 
Bible teachers typically point out that the word he used there for love, the root word phileo, is different from agapao, which speaks of that, that sacrificial love, that divine love, that love that is on the highest plane. Jesus used the lower word. He says, do you phileo me? Do you love? He says, yes, Lord. You know I love you. Effectively, Peter would say, yes, Lord, you know I, I love you. I'm fond of you. And then he asked him another time, Peter, do you love me? He said, Simon Peter, do you love me? And he said, you know that I love you. Each time Jesus said, feed my sheep. And the third time he asked him, the Bible says, Peter was grieved. Why was he grieved? Because he remembered, no doubt, how he had denied his Lord. And what did our Lord Jesus do? Notice what our Lord Jesus did not do. He did not scold him. He says, feed my sheep. The resurrected Christ, beloved, comes with forgiveness. Comes with forgiveness. Comes with restoration. And that's the beauty, that's the charm of the gospel. That there is forgiveness with the risen Christ now, time will not allow us to get, going to go further into the gospel. Suffice it to say that according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 through 8, Jesus, the resurrected Lord, Paul is writing there, and he says this in verses 6 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. Watch the progression. So he would appear to one, to two, he would appear to seven, he would appear to ten, he appeared to eleven, and in many and varied ways, he proved the reality that he was back from the dead. Here it was, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. Somebody might say, well, Peter and the other apostles, they were hallucinating. Skeptics will say that. But what do you do with 500 who saw him at once? And here's what Paul did. Paul appealed to them as witnesses. He says this. Most of whom are still alive. That is at the time he was writing. And he says, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. He appeared to James. Why is that significant? Because James was his brother. You remember what John tells us about his brother? None of his brothers believed in him. Jesus made it a point to meet with his own brother who was unbelieving and then Paul says this last of all as to one untimely born he appeared to me he appeared to me indeed all these appearances of Jesus his instructions his interactions with them the people who saw him touched him ate with him were taught by him following his crucifixion and death attest to the veracity of the resurrection now watch this Somebody says, well, the apostles were gullible they, 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 because of what they were, went through psychologically. Some would say today they would believe anything. Paul says, listen, besides the apostles, 500 brethren. And remember now, among the apostles, among the disciples, you think of a person like Thomas who was skeptical. 
who said, I will not believe unless I see, unless I handle him, unless I touch him. You remember when he met with them behind closed doors and even when he talked to them, he says, touch me, handle me. And even when he ate with them, ate before them, they were still unbelieving for joy. Here's the point. Those were not gullible people. The very fact that they, 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 they tended to be skeptical, the very fact that they were hesitant to readily admit the fact that it is the Lord suggests that Jesus rose from the dead, as he said. All of these post-resurrection appearances and interactions he had with various individuals leading up to his ascension constitute then the many infallible proofs of which Luke writes in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Now, having considered these incontestable proofs, these infallible proofs that Jesus rose from the dead, the question becomes then, so what? And skeptics will no doubt raise the objection, Jesus, yes, may well have come back from the dead, but even if he came back from the dead, as you said he came back from the dead, and as the Bible says he came back from the dead, what then is the big deal? What's the point? And in answer to that question, we begin by saying this, that more than just a fact of history, more than just a fact of history, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is the foundation, is the very foundation of the Christian faith. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we would say, constitutes the engine on which the entire system of the Christian faith runs. And the question we have to answer then is, how so? So let me show you now the significance. What's the point of the resurrection of Christ? Christ came back from the dead, so what? And we're going to answer that question. First of all, Jesus came back from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus therefore proves the authenticity and validity of the Old Testament scriptures. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus proves the authenticity and the validity of the Old Testament scriptures. This is huge. Peter is preaching the first sermon of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost. And Peter opens his Bible. And where does Peter turn he turns to Psalm 16. And listen to Peter as he expounds Psalm 16. He says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Here is Peter's application, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption 
Verse 33, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of, all, and of that we are all witnesses. You see what is happening there? The resurrection of Christ, the risen Christ, proves the validity and the authenticity of Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures. And Peter, preaching the very first sermon, did exactly what we are doing this morning. He appealed to the Word of God to establish the veracity. He did not claim that he saw Jesus. He did not use that as his basis, although that would have been good. This was better. The fact that Scripture says that he, Jesus, would come back from the dead. Beloved, this morning I present to you the risen Christ. He is alive. Why? Because the Word of God affirms that. And that's why we need to believe it. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ announces, what does it announce? The resurrection of our Lord Jesus announces the completion as well as the guarantee of our redemption. Listen to Romans chapter 4 verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What is justification? Justification means this, that we are put right with God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Romans chapter 8 verses 33-34, the resurrection of Jesus Christ signals, what does it signal? It signals the fact that no charge can ever be brought against the redeemed for listen to the Apostle Paul, Paul asks this question, Romans 8, 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Indeed, how true, as someone as well said, the resurrection of Christ was God's amen to Christ's it is finished. So what about the resurrection? Here's the third point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is definitive proof of his deity. The resurrection of Christ is definitive proof of his deity, of the fact that he is none other than the eternal Son of God. We read in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then fourthly, the resurrection of Jesus provides the pattern as well as the promise of the resurrection of the redeemed. It provides the pattern and it provides the promise of the resurrection of those who are saved. Paul made this clear when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22. He says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Notice the pattern as well as the pledge. In other words, the very fact that Jesus Christ came back from the dead announces the fact, it guarantees the fact that we too are going to be raised someday, those of us who have placed faith and trust in him. Because I live, you shall live also, he says. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that you may not grieve as others who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's the promise we have. That's the comfort we have. Bereaved, yes. Here's the point. There's a promise of coming resurrection for those who have placed faith and trust in Christ. Hence it is the living hope we possess as Christians, that living hope unto which we are born again comes by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 21. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Faithfully, the resurrection of Jesus testifies to his truthfulness and hence trustworthiness. The resurrection of Jesus testifies to his truthfulness and hence trustworthiness. You see, one of the things the resurrection of Jesus does is that it vindicates him in all the claims he makes. He claimed, for example, in John chapter 10, verse 18, that no one takes his life from him. That he has authority to lay it down, and he has authority to take it up again. And that we know he did. On at least three occasions, he declared that he would rise from the dead. Matthew 16, 21, 17, 22, 23, John 20, verses 17 through 19. And being proven true on this, it means then that everything else he said has to be true. For example, his claiming that no one comes to the Father but by him. When we say Jesus is the only way, it's because Jesus, the trustworthy one, was proven true by the fact that he came back from the dead just as he said. When he said he has gone to prepare a place for us, that he'll come again to receive us to himself, we have to believe that. Why? Because he said he would die. He said he would lay down his life. He said he would take it up again. And that, that he did. The resurrection of Jesus sixthly provides a stimulus for earnest, fervent service for the Lord. Are you growing weary, discouraged in serving the Lord? The resurrection of Christ provides a stimulus. It provides the motivation. It provides the impetus for Christian service. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, an entire chapter dealing with the subject of resurrection, including the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Here's how Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. Having said all that he said concerning the reality of Christ's resurrection, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection of Christ provides a stimulus for fervent earnest service for the Lord. And then, seventhly, sort of being puritanical this morning, puritanesque. I don't have nine more points before I go on to tell you the use to which we'll put this. But we're winding down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ signals the reality. Listen to this, my friends. This is sobering. The reality of Christ from the de- coming back from the dead signals the fact that there is a coming judgment. Paul is preaching on Mars Hill. And he said to the people on Mars Hill, 
The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You remember our Lord Jesus made a declaration in John chapter 5. He says there's coming a time when every person, every dead will hear his voice. He says those who have done good will become forth to life everlasting. Those who have done evil to resurrection to damnation. There is a coming judgment. And how do we know that? We know that not because of some fairy book tale, not because of some tradition. We know that because Jesus Christ came back from the dead and he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. The question is, are you ready to face him? So based on the teaching of scripture, as we have seen this morning, the validity of any testimony has to be established by two or three witnesses. Scripture teaches that, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. Go back in the Old Testament. On the word of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And as we know, this holds true in our justice system today. Now here's the point. When it comes to the matter of Christ's resurrection, the attestations of that fact are way numerous. Not just two, not just three. Myriads. And what this says to us, my friends, is this, how thankful we should be that our faith in Christ is no myth. We are not asked to take a leap in the dark. We are not asked to subscribe to some make-believe theory. Our faith is for real. Why? Because it is founded on the historical fact of the risen Christ, a Christ who is coming back someday to judge the living and the dead. What this means is that when we invite people to trust Christ and Savior, as we're doing this morning, we're not asking them once again to take a blind leap in the dark. We're calling them to come and trust the once crucified, the once dead, but now living Lord of all. The one who by his death vanquished death. The one who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is of tremendous eternal significance. And I close by saying this, that it is on the veracity of the resurrection of Christ that our eternal destiny hangs. It matters whether or not we believe it. We can't just brush it aside. And if we believe it, it has eternal consequences. It has eternal ramification. If Jesus came back from the dead, he has to be embraced as Lord and as Savior. Do you know him? Face him one day, you must. In weal or in woe. The good news of the gospel is that today you can meet him in peace and in grace. May God grant that these things would be so for his name's sake. Amen.